I will recount the gracious deeds of the Lord, the praiseworthy acts of the Lord, because of all that the Lord has done for us, and the great favor to the house of Israel, that he has shown them according to his mercy, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, Surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their Savior in all their distress. It was no messenger or angel, but his presence that saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. This is the word of the Lord. Dr. Walter Brueggemann, in his commentary on this passage, reminds us that the recipients of these words of the third portion of the scroll of Isaiah are almost surely those who have returned to Jerusalem, to Judah, after 50 years in Babylon. Recall that the first 39 chapters were written by a prophet almost 200 years before the third Isaiah, who's writing because the Ten northern tribes have been destroyed by the Assyrians because the southern tribes called Judah are certainly vulnerable because he believes that their only hope is in the God of Israel. He begs the king, he begs the people to return to God. There's a temporary form, but it doesn't last very long. And 150 years later, the enemy came in the form of the Babylonians, modern day Iraqis. Um, They burned the city. They stripped the temple and the palace of gold, silver, bronze, burned them both, tumbled down the walls of the city, burned the gates, making it vulnerable to any marauding band that might come its way. And the best and brightest were force marched all the way to Babylon. Chapter 40 begins there. More than 150 years of silence now broken by a prophet saying, Comfort, comfort my people, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And he talks about how God is coming and he will knock the tops off the hills and fill in the valleys and they will go triumphantly home. Surely enough, after 50 years of their captivity there, the Persians, modern day Iran, overran modern day Iraqi forebears, the Babylonians, and let the Jews go home. Not many did go home. And those who went home found it in horrible condition. Still just a mass of burned ruins on the top of the hill where their temple had been. Just a mass of burned ruins where the palace of the Davidic kings had been. Walls still tumbled down. Gates not rebuilt. The city still vulnerable. The Canaanites had reestablished themselves. They had taken over the best watering holes, the best vineyards, the best grazing fields, the best wheat fields. It was a hard time. And so Dr. Brueggemann says... This writer is having to help the people struggle with these glorious promises and the reality they're facing. How does one make sense of this between what was promised and what they're actually experiencing? Dr. Christopher Seitz in his commentary says, When you start to read these verses we've just read, remember that the first verses of this chapter portray God Almighty, the warrior dressed for battle. He is ready to do battle for Israel. And this third prophet writes into that kind of situation. Number one, he says, I will recount the gracious deeds of our God. I will recount the gracious deeds of our God. Where would he begin? Once upon a time, there was an old man named Abram with an old wife named Sarai. 
about 100 years old. They've been trying all these years to have a baby without success. They lived in a little no-way place called Ur in the Chaldean Mountains between the Tigris-Euphrates rivers. God came by and said, how would you like to have a son? A son who would found a whole new nation of people who would believe there's only one God and they would worship that one true God. They didn't have a baby right away, but they acted in faith. They rolled up their beds, packed up their tents and moved. And in time, a son was born to them named Isaac. And Isaac and his wife would have two sons, Jacob and Esau. And Jacob and his wives and handmaids would end up with 12 sons. God would work then through Joseph, sold into slavery in Egypt, who became a very important man in Egypt, who saved his people during a famine by having them come south and enjoy the wealth of Egypt. Then a Pharaoh came to power who knew not Joseph, and the people of Israel were thrown into slavery for 400 years. And then one day, Moses, who had grown up in the palace of Pharaoh, who had seen one of his own murdered by an Egyptian, struck that Egyptian down, killed him, and fled for his life. Ended up being a shepherd, a goat herder. Sees a bush on fire in the Sinai Desert one day. Walks over closer to it. A voice speaks to him, gives him a new name for God, sends him back to Egypt. That Moses would lead them through the waters of the sea all the way back to Sinai, come down from that mount with the Ten Commandments. And then there was somebody named Samson and Gideon and Jephthah and Deborah and David and Solomon and Rehob. You understand? I will recount the gracious deeds of the Lord. I will recount. These past few days, we've been recounting our story. We had children stand at the pulpit here and read to you. Once upon a time, there was an enrollment down in Bethlehem and a young woman who was expecting a child before she had yet been with her husband-to-be went to Bethlehem with that husband-to-be to be enrolled in Bethlehem, his hometown. And while she was there, the time came for her to deliver her baby. And that baby was born. She placed him in a manger, which was a feed trough, wrapped in swaddling cloths. Shepherds heard an angelic chorus. And they followed that chorus into Bethlehem and saw the child and fell down and worshipped him. There were magi from another country, astrologers of the time who studied the heavens, who saw one star that seemed to stand still, focus its light on one particular place. And 12 days later, they arrived at Bethlehem and they saw this baby. They were impressed and they gave him the most valuable things they had, gold and frankincense and myrrh. That child grew up. He sought baptism with his cousin John. He was tempted about this new ministry of his. He started calling disciples. He became a great teacher and preacher, healer, worker of miracles, one who could raise the dead to life again, who was himself crucified and raised. This is our story, right? I will recount the glorious deeds, the gracious deeds of our God. Friday afternoon, I had opportunity to visit with a man whose family had been attending our church for about a year now. I asked him if he had enough time for me to show him around a little bit before we got down to questions and answers. And he said, yes. And so I walked him over to the display case and I said, I want you to see... Here are some artifacts from a family, young preacher, young wife, new baby. They came in a covered wagon to an 
Indian trading post here in Indian territory. There was no bridge across the Arkansas River, just a rope where barges, rafts were hauled back and forth. He cut down some poles, stuck them in the soft banks of the river, cut down some branches to give some relief from the hot sun, and began a church. In a time, they were able to build a wooden building, and then they built the brick building. And then when they still had only 1,600 members and were averaging about 500 in attendance on Sunday, they decided they would move from 5th and Boston down to 13th and Boston and build this magnificent church. This is our story. This is who we are. Last July, we had people in their 80s who recounted that they were little children carried in their mother's arms or holding the hand of their fathers as they came down Boston Avenue that Easter Sunday morning in 1929 to move into this beautiful building. They were little children. They're still among us. They told their story. We dedicated a plaque where the wooden church stood. We dedicated a plaque in the sidewalk where the brick church stood. And then we came again to this beautiful church here. 114 years later, we still have the cradle that came in that covered wagon. We use it for the baby Jesus every year. This is our story. This is who we are 114 years later. I will recount the glorious deeds of the Lord. But even when this writer got through, even when we've gotten through with Christmas, not everybody gets it. Our Bishop Robert E. Hayes sent out a Christmas letter. In his Christmas letter, he was recalling the story of John Lenore. John Lenore was a shoemaker who lived in Paris in the late 1700s. Not only did he make shoes, he kept a diary. Every night at the end of his long day, he wrote about what life was like in Paris in the late 1700s. Historians love it because it tells what was going on in the streets of Paris when King Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette were in power there. But scholars have been forever amazed at his entry on July 14, 1789. He wrote, Nothing of importance happened in Paris today. And in fact, that was the day the people had stormed the Bastille when they had broken down the gates, when hundreds of people were released onto the streets, when the French Revolution had really begun. He missed it. He missed it. And there will be some who will hear Israel's story with God and not get it. And they will hear our story of God's coming in flesh and blood in Jesus of Nazareth and not get it. But you and I will. And that's why we're here, to recount the glorious deeds of our Lord. And then we have a wonderful word. These deeds were born out of God's it's a five-letter word in English. has a rough breathing mark over the first. It's chesed. It is used more than any other word in the 39 scrolls of the Hebrew Bible to describe the very essence of God. God is chesed. It's usually translated into English as constant love, never-failing love, abiding love, constant love. You wake up every morning, and when your eyes open, you can know God loves you. When you go to bed at night, you can rest your head on the pillow knowing God loves you. Because that's who God is. God loves every child into whom he's ever breathed the breath of life. Our little Chase Elizabeth, your grandchildren, 
your children, your nieces and nephews, your parents, your grandparents. God so loved the world. That's who God is. It is unconditional, never failing love. Have you seen the special that's been airing here on television during our centennial year by some of the prominent people of Tulsa telling you about the philanthropist in our city? It really is an interesting program. I was watching it the other night again, and, and I know now many of these names that were being recounted. Some of them have given lots of money to make Tulsa a better place to live. But one of the stories I enjoyed most and was most touched by was told by the director of the Little Lighthouse. When we first came to Tulsa uh, nearly 28 years ago now, it was called the Little Lighthouse for the Blind. It was a special place in our city for blind children who needed special love and care and tutoring and mentoring and so on. But in time, there were people that said, but what about my child? She isn't blind, but she has this problem. What about my grandson? He isn't blind, but he has this problem. And so they began to take in other children with handicapping conditions of one kind or another. And eventually the part about the blind was dropped off. It was called the Little Lighthouse. The executive director for many years was daughter-in-law to one of the prominent couples here in our church, Ray and Gwen Mitchell. She's married to, to Ray and Gwen's son. So she was telling this story on, on this video. That a few years ago, there was a man who showed up one day at the Little Lighthouse and asked the receptionist, uh, may I make a gift to the Little Lighthouse? And she said, but of course. And she called the director and she came out and he handed her a little baby food jar. One of the smaller ones that Gerber has made all these years. A little baby food jar full of coins. And she thanked him very much. He turned quickly and went away. Didn't give his name, didn't give his address, didn't give a phone number. He just walked out. But a few weeks later, the receptionist buzzed her and said, he's back. And he had a little baby food jar filled with coins. And he said, I'm just dipping the cream off the top. This is for your children. And a few weeks later, he was back. And every time she thanked him profusely and took his gift, he slipped quietly out the door. And then one day, he showed up with a crisp new $20 bill. And a few weeks later, he brought another new $20 bill. And a few weeks later, another crisp new $20 bill. And then he died. And she said they discovered that all this time he'd been giving to these children whom he didn't even know. He lived in an old school bus. Then in the coldest days of winter in Tulsa, that old bus was heated as well as it was heated with a Coleman stove, a little kerosene stove. But he was giving gifts to these children who needed help so very much whom he didn't even know by name. Love, unselfish love, not self-centered, other-centered, other-centered. That's who God is. Above all else, God is chesed. Number three, third thing comes from verse nine, but I don't think our new Revised Standard Version does a good job on this verse. Uh, if you look at the footnote section, down at the bottom of the page there, it says, and I like this much better, in all their distress, he, meaning God, was distressed. The rabbis in this country uh, did their last great big official translation of their scriptures in 1989. It's called the Tanakh. Tanakh, the Holy Scriptures. I have a copy of that and have been blessed by it for years now. 
And I always read what the rabbis translate when I'm dealing with their scriptures. And in this scripture, they translate, in all their troubles, God was troubled. And Rabbi Gunter Plaut, who's now in his 90s, in his translation says, in all their afflictions, he was afflicted. Meaning that the Jews have understood for centuries and centuries that God, who is love, hurts when those whom he loves are hurt. God is not like the Stoics said, if so big and so powerful, then unaffected. Israel said, no, the one true God is affected. In your troubles, he is troubled. In your afflictions, he is afflicted. You remember when Rabbi Herman Shalman came, the first rabbi to preach in our Barton Clinton Gordy series. I had asked our rabbis here in Tulsa, what speaker would you recommend? We need this first one to be really, really top, top of the shelf here. We need the best you've got. And they recommended Rabbi Herman Shalman out of Chicago. And he was everything promised. That Sunday morning, his first presentation was on the God of Sinai. You know what he did? He recounted the glorious, gracious deeds of the Lord. Just as I did for you a few moments ago, except he did it so wonderfully well. The glorious, gracious deeds of the Lord. The God who chooses to reveal himself to Abraham and Sarah, to Isaac and Rebekah and so on. Sunday night was wonderful. Monday night was terrific. Tuesday night, last presentation, the God of Auschwitz. And he poured out his own heart. He was a college student in this country when the worst, the worst of the Nazi uh, treatment of the Jews occurred. He was told that he could not go home. His mother was arrested and thrown into the camp at Dachau. His father was arrested and thrown into the prison in Munich proper. Dachau, as you know, is just a few miles outside Munich. His mother died. His father died. He did not get to see the one of them living again. When finally the war was over, he was allowed to go home. And when he got to Dachau, he found that the Americans who had liberated that particular camp had bulldozed much of it. They had planted beautiful flowers, beautiful grass, and it had set up a museum there. He said he was still struggling. Where was God? What was God doing? Why was God not helping? And so on. And he went through the museum and out the back door. He just needed to be by himself, he said. And he, as he walked out the back, he saw acres of green, green grass. The greenest he thought he'd ever seen in his life. And he started walking out in the middle of all that grass and suddenly just started sobbing and fell down on his knees. And as he did, his fingertips, all ten of them, went down into very porous soil. And he said he almost rebounded because suddenly he realized this soil is so rich because it is the cremains of thousands and thousands of my people. My mother, my mother is making this grass green. And then he said, I knew that every child's death had broken the heart of God. Every teenager's death had broken the heart of God. Every mother and father's death, every grandmother and grandfather's death had broken the heart of God in that I was called to help heal the broken heart of God. And then he looked out at you and me and said, but who am I to tell you about the God of the broken heart? And he sat down. Do you remember that? How could we ever forget it? 
you Christians, he was saying, you know the broken heart of God, that God so loved the world, of what was done to his son Jesus. You see? Yes. This God who so loves certainly is affected when things are not going well for those whom he loves. He is affected. Number four. Ah, but let's get back to this warrior God because the Jews and then we Christians coming along behind them see that God is both vulnerable by choice, chooses to be affected by what's going on in our lives, but he is also victorious. He is vulnerable and victorious. And this passage provided the title for today's sermon. It was no messenger or angel, but his presence And the rabbis even translate, but he himself who saved them, redeemed them, lifted them up and carried them on. And we believe that God put a part of himself into a flesh and blood person one time, Jesus of Nazareth. That God himself came to us in that Christmas and in every Christmas since and in all the days between Christmases, this God is here to redeem us, to lift us up, and to carry us on. There's a new movie that's just come out called The Debaters. I have not seen it. The Tulsa World Reviewer didn't like it. Uh, I read carefully his review this week, and he didn't care for it. The Wall Street Journal Reviewer liked it very much, Mr. Morgan Stern. It interested me because the whole story is about a debate team from Wiley College in Marshall, Texas. When we go south to visit my mother... We go right through Marshall. Marshall is 30 miles from my hometown. It's 20 miles from the high school where Gail was graduated. We know Marshall, Texas. We know Wiley College. This story is true. The movie changed something. I don't know why they changed. They put that final big debate between these young black students from Wiley College, Marshall, Texas, against Harvard. They didn't go to Harvard. Wiley is a Methodist college. It was built by the Methodists right after the war between the states, just after the Emancipation Proclamation, so that black young people would have a place to go to college. And there was a promise. If you will come here and work hard, we will see to it that you get your education. We will find a way with you and for you to get an education. Do you know who invited them to debate? Our Methodist college in Oklahoma. They came to Oklahoma City and debated the Oklahoma City University debate team, 1935. And then they went not to Harvard, they went to California, USC, the University of Southern California. They debated and won. They defeated the USC debate team. I know Wiley College. Let me tell you about teenagers who were slaves down in Texas. When the Emancipation Proclamation came and then the end of the war, they met, fell in love, got married, had a little boy, and as this little boy began to grow, they started telling him that there was a great future out there for people who had an education. And they one day packed everything he had in a little cardboard suitcase and told him he'd have to catch a ride and walk all the way to Marshall, Texas to go to Wiley College. Uh, The ride he could catch would be in a buggy or in a wagon. And occasionally somebody would pick him up and he'd get to ride three or four miles and then he'd walk eight or ten. And then he might get to ride three or four miles with another wagon or in a buggy and then he'd have to walk eight or ten. He covered more than a hundred miles, went to Marshall, Texas, to Wiley College. And they saw to it there that he graduated. 
he felt the call of God to be a preacher. And he became a preacher down in Texas. In time, he and his wife would have a son. And that son would become one of the really bright stars down in Texas. I, uh, I tell you that in 1968, when finally the black conference of the Methodist Church and, and the white conferences were being integrated in 1968, I credit this man more than any other that I knew with helping make that happen. Now, there were whites who thought he was far too aggressive, and there were blacks who thought he was not aggressive enough and called him Uncle Tom. But I tell you, he was the man, the man who was sent by the bishop to white church after white church to reassure them that everything was going to be all right, and black church after black church to reassure them that everything was going to be all right. And when we were integrated, they made him president of Wiley College. And he and his wife had a son. And three years ago, I led the Oklahoma delegation in seeing to it that he was the first bishop elected and the first black bishop ever to come to the state of Oklahoma to lead us United Methodists. Christmas Day, I was talking with our bishop by phone. He was visiting his father, lost his mother this year. He was at his father's home down in Houston. We were wishing each other a Merry Christmas, and I asked, May I speak with your father? Is he well enough to speak to me? And he said, well, of course, and handed him the phone. And I said, Dr. Hayes, your son is doing so well. He encourages us. He encourages us. He preaches with such conviction and such power. And he encourages the churches and the preachers. Three years ago, when he came to Oklahoma, was one of the greatest days Methodists have ever had in this state. And his father, nearly 90 now, said, Dr. Biggs, I thank you for saying that. I've known for many years the Lord is good.